Today's reading is from Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The word of the Lord. All of us in this room have had the experience of having our picture taken with flash photography. And there's something that's startling, blinding even, about when that flash bulb goes off. But when we go back and look at the picture, we can see that even though we were in this low light uh, uh, situation, we can actually see everything illuminated that's in the room. Now, there's this phenomenon that psychologists talk about called flashbulb events. And these are the kind of events that sear themselves in our collective memory. It's like a flashbulb going off. And so, uh, you know, normally we're going through life and it's kind of at a, at, a, at a low light level. You know, we just sort of go through our days and we don't really notice or remember what has happened before. But when something triggers that, that flashbulb, that light, everything is illuminated and we remember. It's like these questions of, you know, do you remember where you were on September the 11th? What you were doing immediately before you heard about what had happened, how you felt when you first found out, who was the first person or the first people that you talked to, what did you tell them, what did you do throughout the rest of the day. My my guess is that many of us in this room who were uh, of a certain age when that happened have very clear, specific answers to those questions. I know that I certainly do. I remember being a sophomore at the University of Minnesota in my introduction to public speaking class when I first heard the news that one plane had crashed into one of the Twin Towers, and all of us in the class said, oh, wow, how could that happen? That must be some terrible accident. And then by the end of class, word had gotten out that another plane hit the other tower, which we all knew sounded much more ominous, and I went to my next class, English literature, and, and, and if you've gone to a big university uh, like the U, then you know that they have these classes, and these intro classes are just 100, two to 300 kids in these kind of, uh, in these big intro to intro classes. And so it's this huge lecture, and, and, and we're all just sitting there whispering with each other, and then our teacher comes out, uh, our professor, Joel Weinsheimer, and he says, go home. The towers have fallen. The classes are canceled for the day. 
And I remember going to a friend's apartment and watching the news and watching the events play themselves out over and over again. And, and, we, and we were talking. We couldn't understand who would do this or how it could happen. And I remember that night going with my friend, Amy Lucky, to the cathedral in St. Paul to pray. And you could tell at that moment that the world would never, ever be the same again. I learned about this phenomena of, of uh, flashbulb events from the Malcolm Gladwell podcast, Revisionist History, the kind of events where our minds sort of take this flash photo of what happened, soaking in the details to an unparalleled degree when compared with the rest of our lives. You know, I think for most of us, we can hardly remember what we did uh, two days ago, you know, let alone last Sunday or the, the, the week before that. You know, I really have to rack my brain to try to remember. But that day, almost 19 years ago at this point, is seared in my memory where I was, what I did, who I talked to, how I felt, the order of events. That sense that, that life and the world were never going to be the same again. That, that the world had changed in some remarkable fashion. And life is filled with flashbulbs events. In many ways, sort of our mass, mass consciousness or mass culture is shaped by these flashbulb events that sort of define eras. You know, my parents, when I talk to them, they can remember where they were when they heard about the assassination of JFK. Or there's the moon landing or, or the O.J. Simpson chase and verdict. There's the Challenger explosion, the election of Barack Obama, the election of Donald Trump. In kind of a more localized sense, there are these events of mass culture. And in Minnesota, especially for me, they revolve around sports. Gary Anderson missing wide right. Brett Favre throwing across his body. Kirby Puckett crushing a pitch from Charlie Liebrandt over the plexiglass in left field. And Jack Buck making that iconic call. And we'll see you tomorrow night. And the next night, Gene Larkin in the bottom of the 10th, hitting a ball to left center, and Dan Gladden jumping and clapping his hands as he watched the ball land and ran home, and the Twins won the greatest World Series in baseball history. And the collective jubilation and joy that there was in this city. See, flashball memories can be traumatic, and, and, and to be honest, it seems like most of them are, that we remember when bad things happen. But they can also be these moments of great joy. And they're not just these mass collective experiences, either on a national or, or local level. Our, our, our lives are also filled with smaller versions of these events. You remember where you were. First day of school. Last day of school. Meeting your best friend. First dates, proposals, wedding days, promotions. A time you went on a vacation and saw some amazing sight for the first time in your life. Finding out you're pregnant, childbirth, finding out that a relationship is over, a breakup, or, or that some friend has betrayed you, loss, death, these are all flashbulb events. And these flashbulb moments, they're the ones where we know for good or for ill that our lives, that our worlds are never ever going to be the same again. Something fundamental and profound has, has shifted in the order of things and we can't help but remember where we were, how we felt, and what was happening. 
Now you can see where I'm going with this. That the first Easter, in its details, is the ultimate flashbulb event. And Christians believe, we, we claim boldly and publicly, because what Scripture tells us happened that morning, the world, the universe, the cosmos will never be the same again. We hang our entire faith upon what happened that morning. If Jesus' bones are still moldering in some tomb in the confines of Jerusalem, as was claimed a few years ago in the Jesus' tomb fiasco, then this whole thing is a sham, a cruel, sick, and pitiable joke. No matter what the president of Union Theological Seminary says to Nicholas Kristof. But if it did happen like Matthew tells us it did, like the two Marys say that it did, did the nothing can be the same again. And because it's the ultimate flashbulb event, the details matter. There are no wasted words in the Easter story, no extraneous details. And we're not just concerned with what happened that morning, but what those events mean. Because flashbulb events can happen that have no bearing whatsoever on our lives, even when they're incredibly significant. You know, I believe, despite what some YouTube videos would tell me, that we landed on the moon, right? That that happened. It wasn't staged in some studio. So the moon landing happened. That is an incredible achievement of of mankind. I mean, almost unparalleled. But besides the fact that, you know, I can go buy some astronaut ice cream at at the Science Museum, that hasn't changed my life in some profound way. Or another uh, flashbulb event that gets brought up on kind of a global scale, the death of Princess Diana. So many people remember that. They remember where they were. They couldn't believe it. You know, Elton John put out what's the best-selling single, I think, in, in music history, Candle in the Wind. I mean, it was this, her funeral was this global phenomenon, this mass event, and as tragic as that was, it hasn't really changed my life at all. But Easter is different because the claims that are being made are that because this has happened, everything has now changed. The most crucial and important things of all. When you say everything's changed and the most important things have changed, you go, well, what exactly do you mean by that? And more on that later, but for now, let's, let's just take a closer look at the story and, and relish these details for what they tell us about what happened that morning and what that morning means. So Matthew begins the Easter story. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now, the timing of this event was no mistake. Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, the women went to the tomb. Uh, The first day of the week, the dawn, the first light. So first day, first light, does that ring any bells? Matthew Henry says in his commentary on this passage, on the first day of the week, God commanded light to shine out of the darkness, saying, let there be light. And on this day, Easter, did he who is the light of the world shine out of the darkness of the grave. So we have a new creation story. And it's not just, you know, when it happened that's significant, but who it happened to. The two Marys, Matthew tells us, had been there at the cross with Jesus. Everyone else had abandoned him, left him, betrayed him. 
But the two Marys were there. They saw. They were there when they crucified the Lord. And so they had seen him die. And they had seen when his body was laid in this tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea, they had seen the stone rolled in front. They had been through it all. They had seen Jesus die. They had seen him buried in that exact place. So there was no mistaking for them where they needed to go. And so Matthew tells us that they returned to the tomb. They were going on a walk to the cemetery, and unbeknownst to them, somewhere along that walk, they left one world behind and entered another. They left the old creation and entered the new. They left the world of shadows and sadness and sickness and suffering and injustice and evil and empire and death. They left that world behind on their walk, and they entered into God's new creation, a world of light and joy and healing and flourishing and redemption and peace and forgiveness and life. They were like the Pevensey children, venturing into the back of the wardrobe and not realizing that they had entered into Narnia. And so Mary and Mary, they go for a walk, and they think they're just going to visit Jesus' tomb. But, but the surprise that they see is that they're getting a glimpse into God's new world, what Matthew calls the kingdom of heaven. A world where, as the great church father Peter Chrysologus tells us, the order of things is changed. He says there's the old world, the way things normally operate. Well, there, there's a new order taking place here on Easter morning. He says the order of things has changed. The tomb devours death and not the dead. And the house of death becomes the mansion of life. It is the world where, to borrow a phrase from the Jesus storybook Bible, everything sad comes untrue. And then there's the earthquake and the angel and the stone rolled away and the guards trembling and left lying on the ground as if they're dead. And is there any greater irony than these guards who had been given the easiest assignment in the history of guard duty to keep a corpse in the tomb, to keep a stone that weighs between two and 4,000 pounds, and it's rolled into a groove in place. All they had to do was keep that dead body dead and that heavy stone in place. But those who were given that task become like the corpse they were supposed to guard. Whereas Jesus becomes the very essence of life. Because they still, the guards, they still belong to that old world. Where what matters in the end is, is force, is power. I mean, the state operates on the monopolization of coercive power. And ultimately, death is the ultimate tool you can use to get your way. As long as you can hang that threat over people's head, you can get them to do almost anything you want them to do. And the guards, Matthew tells us in the verses immediately after our passage, that when they discover that the tomb is empty and the stone's been rolled away, they have to come up with a cover story. They have to give it their own spin. That's the old world, too. The, the monopolization of what counts as legitimate knowledge, the ability to control the narrative. That's the old world, and that's the world that honestly so often it feels like is going to win out in the end. And, and as Easter people, we still have one foot in the old world and one foot in the new. We live in, in the tension between the old world and the new. 
in the world of the cynics and of realpolitik and propaganda and Machiavellian maneuvering, the world of tombs and stones and guards and lies. And that's the world, that's, that's the kingdom, the counter-kingdom that Jesus came to upend and that his resurrection ultimately proves will be upended. Human existence in the old world, it means living under the constant shadow of this great period at its end. That we will become past tense, completed, over, done with, finished. End of sentence, end of paragraph, end of story. But instead, the resurrection, Easter, opens up God's limitless possibilities. The stone rolled away and the tomb being empty, they replaced that period with an ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. That means that there's still hope, still a future, still more to the story, still more to see, still more to do. That's what the angel's words to the women mean, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Dead, finished, done. But he is not here, for he has risen, dot, dot, dot. As he said, come and see the place where he lay. So they thought the story ended with the crucifixion. And instead, they were invited into a world where it was just getting started. They thought the universe was still closed, but God had just burst it wide open. And their most remarkable thing, something that we don't often take note of, is is that none of the four Gospels show us the event of the resurrection itself. We don't get a description of what it was like when Jesus rose up from the grave. All we get are its effects the empty tomb and the appearances of Christ. The event itself is left shrouded by the gospel writers in ineffable mystery. There are places to which the mind of man would love to peer, but which God does not allow us to see. You know, we can even take a photograph of a black hole, but the resurrection of Jesus remains for us like a crater. We don't get to see the explosion of God's new life into the world. We get to see its effects as its shock waves ripple out across time and across space, first to the two Marys, then the disciples, then the 500, then to Paul, and now the billions of folks who go by the name Christian. We can trace all that back to this single event, this true moment of singularity. The earthquake and the angel and the stone rolled away. On Easter morning, those things were not for Jesus. They were for the two Marys and for us. And on this point, I absolutely love what Peter Chrysologos has to say, him again. He writes, an angel descended and rolled back the stone, and he did not roll back the stone to provide a way of escape for the Lord but to show the world that the Lord had already risen. He rolled back the stone to help his fellow servants believe, not to help the Lord rise from the dead. He rolled back the stone for the sake of faith, because it had been rolled over the tomb for the sake of unbelief. He rolled back the stone so that he who took death captive might hold the title of life. Pray, brothers and sisters, that the angel would descend now and roll away all the hardness of our hearts and open up our closed senses and declare to our minds that Christ has risen. 
For just as the heart in which Christ lives and reigns is in heaven, so also the heart in which Christ remains dead and buried is a grave. The Easter proves that God's new world isn't just for Jesus, it's for us too. We don't just see what happened to him and go, wow, that's cool. God can do some amazing stuff. No, we are invited to experience a foretaste of that same life, a sampling, a preview of that same world, that same power now, today. And it all hangs on verse 6 where the angel says, He is not here for he has risen as he said. And in that one verse on which it all hangs, verse 6, it actually all hangs on one word, one Greek word, which we need three or four English words to translate to do the same work. He has risen, or if we were being more wooden, he has been raised. He has been raised. Now, remember I said earlier that because Easter is true, you know, everything has, has changed, the most important and fundamental things, that, that the implications of this are, are foundational. That what, that's what makes this the ultimate flashbulb event. And, and really here, there's three things that I mean by when I say everything has changed for us. And first, these words, he has been raised, that's our presumptive evidence for the existence and reality of God. The passive voice is used here, he has been raised, points to the one who did the raising, the one whom Jesus called Abba, Father. So for the Christian, ultimately, you know, the existence of God, I mean, you know, you can do like St. Thomas Aquinas and, and the five ways, and there's a philosophical tack that one can take, which can be quite fruitful. But at the end of the day, it rests on this word, he has been raised. The existence of God is seen most powerfully and prominently there. And second, that he has been raised, it speaks to reality of life beyond death. You know, this is one of the great questions that haunts human existence, that hangs over us. What happens when we die? Is there any hope for life beyond the grave, life after death? Or when we're thinking about resurrection, we can be thinking about life after, life after death. Do we have any hope? And because he has been raised, we do. We have real hope for life after death, not false hope, not wish casting onto the universe that we can survive death, that that's not the end of the story. And the older we get and the more we're faced with our own mortality, our own finitude, the more that we see people around us suffer and die, the more we understand what good news this is. And third, because he has been raised, we believe that there is purpose in life. This isn't just, you know, some meaningless trek through a veil of tears. If Jesus has been raised, then Jesus is indeed Lord of all, including of our lives. And so his way of living, his teaching about the kingdom has been vindicated. God has proved it right. Discipleship, walking in Jesus' footsteps, obeying his instructions, apprenticing with him, sharing that message with and apprenticing others, all of that is predicated upon the resurrection. He has been raised. Otherwise, you'd be a fool to follow him. Now, that's a lot of weight for one little word to bear. But if the resurrection is true, if Easter is real, then that word can bear the weight like a Gothic arch supporting a cathedral. 
And this faith isn't blind. The angel says, yes, he has been raised. And then he invites the women to go and see the place where he lies. To examine the evidence for themselves. New Testament scholar Dale Bruner says, the Christian does not get a lobotomy when he or she makes the decision to be a disciple. Jesus wants his people to be honest to think about their faith, and to be able to investigate its problems. The angel's command to empirical investigation is wonderfully freeing, and rightly heard, it can protect the church from anti-intellectualism. Let it be so. So already, on the first Easter, we see that, that the two Marys, they get the essence of the gospel. He has been raised. And they get something that has marked the Christian tradition from its inception, which is theology, theological reflection. Really, the the discipline of theology did not emerge until the Christian faith did. You know, Greek and Roman mythology, there's no theology attached with them. Even Judaism, theological reflection in that tradition arose alongside of Christian theological reflection. So there at the tomb, we see this challenge uh, to engage in theology as as has been handed down to us and defined as faith-seeking understanding. And so from its beginning, Christians have had this message. He has been risen. And we've had this call to examine that and see what does that mean. But just as important as, you know, this this news and and this call to think the faith through, these women are also given a, a mission. Go tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. Because Easter isn't about a private revelation or a personal religious experience. Easter is the public truth that the church is commanded to share with the world. So mission isn't incidental to Easter. It is baked in and essential to the event itself. And so Easter here, we see that the whole life of the church, gospel, theology, mission, all in this moment. And the women do go and they go to tell the disciples. And Matthew tells us that they left the tomb with fear and great joy. Fear and great joy. And the two Marys here are the church in miniature. They're like us. We leave here filled with great joy at this great news that we've heard. But also fear, or we might say apprehensiveness, as we move toward a skeptical, and depending on where you live, a dangerous world. And as the women are on their way, as they are faithfully engaging in mission, they meet Jesus. Let the listener understand. When, when we are faithfully engaged in our mission to share the good news of Easter in word and deed, we will meet the Lord. Or, or it's better to say, he will meet us. And the first words of the risen Jesus to these women, I love this. He says, hi. Hello. This is just the Greek word for the common colloquial greeting. You might expect some more profound words to come out of Jesus' mouth. I mean, he's just been resurrected from the dead. But he just says, hi. Now, literally, this word means to rejoice. And I think it points us to the fact that the end result of Easter should be joy. So what if it's true? If the result isn't joy? Joy in the heart of the Christian and joy in the particular communities that gather in his name. A Christian without joy, a church without joy is a Christian and a church without Jesus. Of course, we have to parse the difference between joy and happiness. 
because this isn't a call to just always wear a smile on your face and be sort of happy, clappy, and pretend that nothing bad or wrong ever happens. Joy is deeper than a feeling. It's almost an orientation of the soul. Joy is knowing that there is a truth that has set you free. Knowing that because he lives, the story of the universe does have a happy ending, and so we can face real struggles, real sorrows, real horrors and justices even of this world, knowing that just as the stone and the soldiers and death and the lies couldn't stop God then, they're not going to stop him now. And when Jesus meets the Marys, what do they do? They fall down at his feet and and grab hold of him and worship him. And here at this moment, we see the full Christian understanding of who Jesus is, fully human, fully divine. They grab hold of his feet, fully human. They worship him, fully fully divine. Already the profoundest truths of the Christian faith are present right here in the Easter story. And in reading the commentaries this week, one of them talked about, well, you know, alternative explanations for the Easter story, and this is some sort of ghost apparition appearance. And, 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 and ghost stories were very common in the ancient world. I mean, they're still common in our own world. And they were widely circulated, widely believed by most people, but without exception, in all of the old ghost stories around the ancient world, conspicuously, none of the ghosts had feet. Ghosts don't have feet. You can go home having learned that on Easter Sunday. Ghosts don't have feet, but the risen Jesus does. And Matthew tells us what Jesus said to the two women, and essentially you could say this is redundant. He's kind of repeating what the angel said before. So did he have to show up and just to repeat what they had already been told? Besides, go tell the disciples to go to Galilee and they'll see me there. But Jesus, the details matter. This is a flashbulb event, and so the minute details matter. And so Jesus changes one word, and in that word we get the clue to really what this whole new world is about. The angel had said, go quickly and tell his disciples. But Jesus says, go and tell my Adelphoi, my brothers and sisters. So disciples to brothers and sisters. That's the world, new world that's opened up by Easter. That those who had been Jesus' students, his apprentices, uh, the failures who had abandoned him and denied him, those who had been unfaithful on Good Friday, are now welcome back to Jesus as sisters and brothers. And so the good news of Easter is the good news of the new world that is created, the new possibilities that are opened up by the miracle of forgiveness. Because Easter isn't just about something that happened to Jesus once, a a conjuring trick with bones, as one skeptic derisively called it. Easter is about something that happened to Jesus, happening to all creation. What's old has been made new. What was closed has been opened. What is dead is now bringing forth life. What was sin has been forgiven. What was lost has been found. What was dark has become light. A, a, A flash bulb light illuminating all of history and our lives as well. And so when the flashbulb of Easter goes off, there's the question of where were you and what were you doing when you first believed that this was true? When Jesus first met you, when you first understood that because he has been raised, this world and your world and your understanding of it could never ever be the same again. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.